there were once two guys. One was called Jack, and the other was called John. And John worked at this particular university. And at one time or another, Jack also became employed there. And it was there that they met for the first time. Shortly after meeting, this is what Jack wrote in his diary about John. There's no harm in him. He only needs a smack or so. Well, over time, these two gentlemen became good friends. And when others looked at them, what they saw was encouragement between them. They, they saw them stirring one another up. They were both authors, they wrote, and they encouraged one another in their writing. And actually, later in life, what John said about Jack, the debt that he owed him was this. He said he had an unpayable debt that I owe to Jack, which is not influence, but sheer encouragement. They knew that they would receive encouragement from one another. Later on in life, their, their friendship drifted apart and never regained the strength that it once had. But upon Jack's death, this is what John wrote. So far, I have felt like an old tree that's losing all of its leaves one by one. But this feels like an axe blow near the roots. You may know these two men by the more well-known names, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series and many other books, and the author of the Lord of the Rings series. And they had one of the most famous, well-known friendships between authors of all time, certainly of the 20th century. And when we read their personal letters and descriptions of other people observing their relationship, we see how they treated one another. Sometimes it's maybe not the way that we would hope that they treated one another, but oftentimes they showed us what true friendship really looks like. Uh, over the rest of the summer, we as a church at Hillside are going to be looking at certain statements throughout Scripture that have this little phrase attached to the end of them, which is, one another. I encourage one another. Honor one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Stir up one another. Consider one another. We're going to look at many of these statements and these commands. And one another doesn't just refer to everyone. Although it's true that a lot of these actions and practices and characteristics we should apply to anyone that we meet, Paul or James or whoever's writing is specifically directing us as to how we should treat brothers and sisters in Christ. There seems to be a priority with how we interact with one another in the church. What should relationships in the church be characterized by? When someone from the world looks in on the church, looks in on hillside, and the relationships that Christians have with one another, what should they see? What patterns, what habits, what characteristics should define how we are interacting with one another? And so this morning, we're going to look at one of these instructions, which in fact is found in Romans 15. So let's go ahead and, and read that together. Let me read verses 5 to 9. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement 
give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Other translations might say, welcome one another or receive one another. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Accept one another. That's the instruction that we're given in this passage. And here's what I want us to think about this morning. Jesus Christ has accepted us. Through faith in him, Jesus has accepted me. He's accepted you. Despite all of our sin and failures, despite my sin and failure, he has accepted me. Despite you and your sin and your failure, he has accepted you. Are we accepting our brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that Christ has accepted us? Do our thoughts, our words, and our actions demonstrate to the world that we are accepting one another? And if so, what does it tell them about how we are accepting one another? That's what we're going to be exploring. You know, personally, I think it's easy for me to read some of these one another commands and see them as cliches. They either seem naively optimistic or they seem so detached from real life and broad and general to be meaningful in, in any sense. And yet when I really think about how these commands were put together, they're not proverbs. They weren't just pulled out of the air by someone meditating on top of a mountain. These commands were forged. They came out of real situations in the early churches. They came out on, on the ground. Real life, with all of its complexities, led to these instructions that we read. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been trying to demonstrate how the good news of Jesus is for both Jews and for Gentiles, non-Jews. And the church in Rome seems to have had conflict between two different groups of Christians. One group believed in the importance of maintaining all the details of the Jewish law in response to salvation. And then the second group believed that since Christ had fulfilled the law, they had freedom from maintaining all of these details. And the chapter before our passage, Romans 14, Paul essentially says, you know what, actually, yes, the second group is correct. Our salvation gives us some freedom from the law. However, each believer must follow their conscience in regards to this issue. What shouldn't be happening is you should not be rejecting one another over this. 
And you should not be putting all of your time and effort into convincing the other person that they are wrong and that you are right. Here's the big idea. This issue must not divide the church because it's secondary. That doesn't mean that it's not important. That doesn't mean that both groups are correct. What it does mean is that in many cases, unity of relationship is more important than unity of thought. It means that in secondary issues, accepting one another is more important than thinking exactly the same thing. It means that in fundamentals, in the basics, unity in the fundamentals is more important than unity in everything. But what actually does it mean to accept one another? If you interviewed a thousand people, you'd probably get a thousand different answers about what it means to accept one another. First, we could use the word accept to mean something passive. I've accepted the situation. You know, I've, I've just let go. I've, I've let go of this situation. I've, I've come to terms with it. But that's not the sense here. Instead, we see it's something active. When we welcome someone with open arms, that's the type of acceptance that is being talked about. We can see how this word is used throughout the rest of the New Testament to give us a picture of, of what it means. In Acts 28, Luke tells a story about uh, Paul being on a ship, and the ship is shipwrecked, and he washes up on an island, Malta. And this is what Luke writes about the islanders. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. That word welcomed is the same word that's used in Romans 15. Just like the islanders received, accepted, welcomed Paul and those who were shipwrecked, so we should receive, accept, welcome one another. What we see in Philemon 17, Paul is writing to this brother in Christ, Philemon, and he says, welcome Anesimus, your runaway slave. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Welcome him as you would welcome me, your brother, Paul. It's not talking about some kind of passive responsibility. No, this is an active, a high responsibility, a high calling. We are to welcome, accept one another, just as Philemon was expected to welcome Paul and Anesimus. Accepting one another is not passive, it's active. Second, accepting one another doesn't just mean tolerating one another. The same word used in Romans 15 is found in one translation of Psalm 27, where it says, my father and my mother abandoned me, but the Lord accepted me. Acceptance is the opposite of abandonment. We may be rejected, abandoned by all people, but the Lord God has accepted us and welcomed 
us, does not desert us. It's the kind of acceptance that Jesus offers us, a tolerance. Does he just bear with us? Does he half-hearted, reluctantly put up with us? Or does he welcome you with open arms? Does he embrace you, love you, desires good for you, is fully wholehearted towards you? That is the kind of acceptance that Jesus Christ offers. He genuinely cares for our well-being. He is active in pursuing our good. Accepting one another doesn't just mean tolerating. It means full-on embracing one another. Third, accepting one another doesn't mean looking, overlooking sins. In Galatians 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Elsewhere in Scripture, it even talks about brothers and sisters in Christ lovingly rebuking one another, challenging one another, stirring one another up um, on to live a holy life for the Lord. You may have heard of the term cancel culture recently. And it's the idea that when someone does something wrong, they are canceled, which means they should be fired from their job. If they have produced music or books or videos, then they should be boycotted. Everyone near to them should distance themselves from them, should publicly reject them and push them away, outcast them. And we don't have time to get into the nuances of this movement. But there are two dangers, at least. First is, obviously, as followers of Christ, what we believe is right and wrong does not always align with what other parts of our culture believe is right and wrong. So who decides what's right and what's wrong? Who, who decides who people, which people should be canceled and which shouldn't? It ends up being more of a mob mentality, a social media mob mentality. And the second issue is that there's no room for repentance in cancel culture. Although repentance doesn't always mean that relationships should or can be or will be restored in the same way as before, Scripture is clear that we should accept genuine repentance. That's actually part of our calling as Christians, as followers of Christ, to accept repentance. I'm concerned when we see certain types of cancel culture in the church. Because Christ has accepted each of us. Maybe we cancel someone because of the Bible translation that they use. And maybe we don't even completely shut them down, but we just distance ourselves a bit from them. We don't go out of our way. And in the end, we really don't interact with them or talk with them. Or maybe we look down on someone because of their views on the end times or spiritual gifts. Or what about the church's response to COVID-19? One person might say, we need to gather together. The definition of the church 
in the New Testament is a gathering. It's a group of people together. To be, to be obedient to God, we must gather together. Another person might say, we must not gather together. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourself. If we meet together, we risk spreading this virus and someone becoming harmed because of us. In order to be obedient to God, we must not meet together. What I don't think God is calling us to do is disregard our differences in this issue. And I don't think that he's saying that both views are equally wise. What I do think that he is saying is that the unity of the church is of utmost importance. There is a very high bar for breaking unity. Is this really a primary issue? Is this really a fundamental, fundamental issue of the gospel that's at stake? What it really means to accept one another is to welcome with open arms, to desire the best for someone, to receive them with their flaws and their differences, and for our relationship with them to not be contingent upon them changing. That's what I think the kind of acceptance that Paul is talking about in Romans 15 is. That's the kind of acceptance that we are called to give to one another. Is there anyone that you have not welcomed with open arms because of a secondary issue? I think that we can all think of someone. I know that I can, myself. Someone that I need to be more accepting of. Have we stopped talking to someone because of their views on COVID-19? Have we kind of taken away that, that hand of relationship, that hand of fellowship? How will you reach out to them? How will you reach out to them? Write it down on a piece of paper. Keep it. Commit yourself to it. Will you commit to, as we go through these one another statements uh, for the rest of the summer, will you commit to that person that you haven't accepted as you should be, that you will apply all of these commands to them, that you will encourage them, that you will love them, that you will care for them, that you will be active in pursuing their good, despite your differences, despite their flaws, despite your flaws, will you commit to that? Finally, the question we need to ask isn't just what does it mean to accept one another, but why should we even accept one another in the first place? What's our foundation for this? Last week, Ben spoke to us about the foundation for believing in the value of every human being. Why do we believe that every person, whatever their skin color, is equal in the sight of God? And he showed us that it's because of what Christ has done. It's because Christ died for all people. The price that was paid was the same for everyone. The same value has been ascribed to every person. So why should we accept one another? Verse 7 tells us, Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you. Just as Christ accepted you. 
we never make the first move. Jesus has always made the move first. How has Christ accepted you? Let me ask you that. Christ has accepted me with with great mercy, with grace. When I didn't deserve it, not just when I was... uh, didn't actively deserve it, but when I actually didn't deserve it, when I truly didn't deserve it, he accepted me. This is how Jesus expects us to accept one another, the same way that he's accepted us. And if I don't accept others the way that Christ has accepted me, it actually diminishes his sacrifice. It shows that I have a higher standard than God has. Jesus once told a parable about a servant of a king. And this servant owed the king millions, billions of dollars. He had a massive, insane debt to this king. And one day, the clock ran out, and the king summoned the servant. And the king said, give me my money. Where is it? The servant said, I don't have it. And he fell on his hands and his knees. And he begged him. He said, please, just give me more time. And the response of the king wasn't just to give him more time. He he went so many steps further. And he actually erased the entire debt. He wiped the whole slate clean. A little while later, That servant went out, and he came across another servant, a servant that actually this time owed him money, a few thousand dollars, and he grabbed this servant. And what would you expect him to do, this servant who had been showing such great mercy? He grabbed this servant, and he said, give me my money. And this servant fell to the floor on his hands and his knees, and he begged the servant, saying, please just give me more time. And the first servant said, no. And he threw him into prison. The main point of Jesus' teaching here is how God has treated us is how we are to treat others. God has shown such great mercy. Therefore, we are to show mercy to others. God has accepted us. Therefore, we are to accept others in the, in the same way. When we accept one another, we glorify God. He is glorified. He is praised because of when the church accepts one another. There are so many divisions all throughout the world, and the church is meant to be a place in the world where we say, what an odd group of people. People are so different, yet loving and accepting of one another, despite the differences, despite their flaws that they intimately know. At the end of verse 7, it says, accept one another then. In order to bring praise to God, when we accept one another in spite of our differences, brings praise to God. His name is praised because of it. Praise be to God that he has accepted me in spite of my sin. Praise be to Jesus that he has taken my sin. He has taken my guilt upon himself. He's taken it away. That's what he's done for me. 
That's how much he loves me. That's how much he loves you. And that, in turn, is the, the love, the acceptance that we are to show to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we affirm that it is not easy to love those who are different from us. It's not easy. It, it goes against our sinful nature. We naturally dislike and find it difficult to truly accept people who are different from us. We ask that you would give us grace as we try to become more like you in this. As we try to accept one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the same way that you have accepted us. Show us what it means to accept our brother and sister in their particular circumstance. In our particular circumstance, please demonstrate that to us, Lord. Help us to commit to this one another series that as we are challenged to practice each of these instructions, that we would do that not just to those that we find it easy to be around, but actually those that we find it more difficult to be around. Lord, how would the church look different? How would Hillside look different if we took this to heart, if we really practiced this, the kind of acceptance that you desire of us, not getting distracted by secondary issues, keeping the main things, the main things. We thank you for your great mercy, Lord. Amen.